0: Be continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast.
3: Progressive presents Adjusting to the Suburbs.
4: I never thought about space in my cramped apartment, but in this house, all I see is empty space. The sofa and ottoman look like tiny islands in a sea of hardwood floors. I could get two ottomans in the living room, but then I'd need another sofa. (gasps) I could tell people I'm into minimalism.
3: Anyway, when you save with Progressive by bundling your home and auto, that's the easy part of adjusting to the suburbs. Progressive Casual Key Insurance Company coverage provided in service by affiliates and third-party insurers. What
5: happened to music that meant something? The Who at the Kingdom or Kiss at the Coliseum. Where is the misty mountain hop? Where is the is the smoke on the water? Where is the Iron Man of today?
0: Yeah. not a test. This is
6: rock and roll. Welcome to Sound Opinions from Chicago Public Radio and American Public Media. I'm Jim DeRogatis, a pop music critic at the
3: Chicago Sun-Times. And I'm Greg Cutt. I write about rock and roll for the Chicago Tribune. Today, on the world's only rock and roll talk show, we're going to pay tribute to the godfather of soul, the late James Brown. Plus, we'll have a performance in the studio from psychedelic rockers, The Secret
6: Machines, and our answer to the Grammys or the Oscars, The Soupies.
3: You're listening to Sound Opinions.
0: So now, listen, gentlemen, it is start time. Are you ready for start time? It is indeed a great pleasure to present to you at this particular time, national and international known as the hardest working man in show business. Man, to saying, I'll go crazy. Try me. You've got the power. Think if you want me I don't mind bewildered million dollar seller lost someone mister dynamite the amazing mister please please himself the star of the show James Brown and the famous flame
6: Greg I don't think we're worthy to follow That introduction, (laughs) one of the most classic moments on any live album ever recorded in the history of popular music. I think we can say that definitively. That was uh, the famous Flames organist, Lucas Fats Gonder, in a typical introduction of James Brown. And listen to that list of hits. This is only 62. James Brown hadn't even gotten started. It's the middle of the Cuban Missile Crisis, right? (laughs) And James decided he wanted to match what Ray Charles had done in 59 uh with uh, Ray's big successful live album but the record company wouldn't pay for it so James paid himself James didn't like to pay for himself but he paid he rented out the Apollo Theater in Harlem to get the crowd properly lubricated uh they were waiting outside in in the cold for several hours he gave them coffee that had been spiked <laughs> It's supposed to be uh, half an hour long, but it actually clocks in at, at something a little over 20 minutes, and yet it is one of the greatest live albums ever. James Brown, live at the Apollo. It put him on the Billboard chart for 66 weeks. Through the rest of his career, he would proceed to have 119
3: charting hits. If you've been under a rock for the last week, you probably don't know that James Brown died at the age of 73. Everybody else on the planet does know. That the Godfather of Soul has left the planet. You know, Jim. Here was a guy who was famous for his exits and never quite being <laughs> able to <laughs> leave the stage. He'd always come back one more time for one more encore. He'd get the cape put on him. Yeah. He'd dotter off the stage exhausted. They yeah, they'd come have to back carry to the him off. Carry him off because he'd be so completely and thoroughly spent. But you know, there's going to be no more encores this time. I mean, it's hard to believe that the hardest working man in show business, and he literally was, he, even when he entered that Atlanta hospital. O- over the last weekend right before Christmas uh, he was still talking about the gigs he had to do he had gigs lined up in, in, in January and February yeah. he was playing, playing on tour. New Year's Eve Got to play on New Year's Eve at B.B. King's and he was talking about that show and I don't want to miss that show I, You know, get me out of here because uh, I've got to make that show. The man was literally playing hundreds of shows every year up until uh, his death at age 73. You've heard this news, and people have been talking about James Brown all
6: week since he died early on Christmas morning. One of the things we can do on Sound Opinions is give a little bit of context and insight, I think, in in ways that other media don't. What we want to celebrate is this guy's music. Uh, Greg, when I'm on vacation, I have what I call the dead beetle rule. (laughs) <laughs> okay, you know there, there's there's times when I'm just off, right, and that's fine. If the office needs me, you know we, we both are as newspaper critics. We're on call, a- and so I get this call early Christmas morning, and I look at it, it's not my mom, and I'm like, uh-oh, it's the news. They said, well, we don't know if this qualifies, Jim. I said, what have you have you seen? I said, no, I haven't turned on the news. It's Christmas Day. Give me a break. They said James Brown. I said, oh, that, that that qualifies. He is on the level of one of the Beatles dying, Elvis Presley, Bob Dylan. I think that may throw some people. But you have to put him in perspective, A, of his innovations, and B, his influence. There is no black popular music today, no hip-hop, no R&B, no
3: soul, no disco, no electronic dance music without James Brown. I I think if you uh, listen to music today, by far, by far the most influential person on that music is James Brown. More so than the Beatles, more so than Dylan, more so than Presley, anybody you could name. He's influenced not only hip-hop, but funk disco. I mean, he invented those genres of dance music. Let's talk about how he did it. Several phases to
6: his career. One of the big innovations was when he broke on the scene in the uh, mid-50s. Very few R&B soul band leaders were were leading and maintaining their own band. He had this vision. He wanted to have a band of his own. The first one he put together was the famous Flames. And, you know, if you look at the musicians who went through his ranks through the years, Maceo Parker, who would go on to play saxophone for Prince and be one of the great saxophone players in the world, uh, the drummers, Clyde Stubblefield, the original funky drummer, Fred Wesley, the trombone player, Bootsy Collins, who would go on to help George Clinton make funk history with Parliament Funkadelic. uh, Great musicians he always had them, famously uh, would find them if they played a bad note or dropped a note or were late, uh, was a taskmaster. So so that was one change right in the beginning. But the first soul era that, that produced that, that hit, Please Please Me, that put them on the map and that you hear at, in Live at the Apollo, what was that about? Please, please,
7: please, please. <laughs>
3: Well, please, 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 to me, embodied the soul era. came out in 1956, the first record that uh, James Brown put out, and it was a hit right off the bat. I mean, Ray Charles, let's give Ray credit. I mean, he was essentially the guy who fused gospel and blues, gospel and R&B, and made it soul music. James Brown came along a little later than that, but to my mind, Brown embodied the soul era, and with that record we just played, Live at the Apollo, there is no better example of what soul music is, that spiritual gospel church singing style infused with carnality, with the idea of, you know, <laughs> hey, godliness on earth is a woman, you know, and, and that's what James Brown was singing about in a lot of those songs. So, please, 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 that's where it all started. The amazing thing to me, Jim, is that if he had done only that, he would have been remembered as one of the greats. But, but, but that was there. just the
5: start.
0: Honey,
3: But I think where the real innovation starts, Jim, is with uh, Papa's Got a Brand New Bag in 1965. You wrote the paper, The Birth of Funk, in this one song. I don't think anything on the radio sounded like Papa's Got a Brand New Bag in 1965. And we're going to talk about this song in greater depth in a few moments. But I think he completely reimagined his sound and what his music was going to be at this point in time. He kind of realized, hey... The soul thing is played out. I've done that. I've I've made the greatest soul album I ever made. You know the live, yeah, yeah. The live at the Apollo record. There's nowhere to go with this anymore. And with Papa's got a brand new bag. He re- literally reinvented himself and his band. You as a drummer, my friend, could probably speak to this better <laughs> than I. Uh, and and James envisioned this. A lot of rock backbeats were on the two and the four, two. right? The the second and fourth beat of every bar. James. Completely changed the template. There. Put the emphasis on the one and the three. The guy started
6: out as a drummer. When he was in reform school for three years in Augusta, Georgia, in his teens for breaking into cars, he had nothing to do. Would bang on brooms and pots in his cell. That's how he learned to play. Became friends with Bobby Bird, whose family took him in, had come from a gospel background. Uh, they taught him how to play organ. And, and Bobby swears that organ was, was James's real love. I don't buy it. It was all about the drums. At many points, he not only had one funky drummer, he had two drummers. I think people forget that, just how massive it was. And all of rock and roll, all of country, uh, much of American music is putting the emphasis on, as you said, the two and the four. James decides that it's the one and the three are sexiest. Not even really one and three. It's that little space between one and two and three and four. And and you can just hear it in the rhythms. (laughs) So you hear what I'm saying with the drums there. Right. right? It's that subtle groove. What's more, the production is revolutionary. Because if you really listen here, the things you're hearing louder than everything, louder than the horns, louder than his voice. The electric bass. Well, the electric bass, the snare drum, Greg, the snare drum and the hi-hat, that's the center of this mix.
3: Yeah, you're right. The rhythm section is at the at the core of the mix. Everything is made to sound like a drum. The guitars right. sound like a drum. Jimmy Nolan is not playing traditional guitar chords here. He's no, playing this it's all rhythm. Chink, chink, chink. You know, throughout the song, it's a right. chicken scratch rhythm that Jimmy Nolan sort of popularized. But Brown was saying, I don't want any of those stinking blues chords. On this. Right. It's yeah. almost like <laughs> no it, solos. Yeah. It no solos. It was almost it was stripped down so that everything, even his voice, is very. The punctuations in his voice are very much uh, about sort of a rhythmic, guttural kind of sound. And the horns, listen to the way the horns are phrasing. Again, Again, everything punches. Exclamation points. They're not playing jazz lines. They're playing bursts.
6: Now... I dare you to name a single lyric in this song, besides the title. (laughs) Besides (laughs) Papa's Have you ever been able to play No. It must be said, James, as a singer, is often completely unintelligible. He's talking about dance steps, the mashed potato. But who knows? It doesn't matter because his voice is a rhythmic instrument. Yes, absolutely. He, He sings like drummers play the drums.
3: And Jim, in 1965, I can't state this enough. It was revolutionary. You know, you had the Beatles and you had Beach Boys and you had the Stones and you had the Kinks and the Who and none of them sounded like this. I mean, this was blowing people's minds. Well, And and when people talk about modern R&B,
6: modern dance music, modern uh, hip hop, you know, they say there's no melody. It's all about rhythm. and, and, And you could argue there's a whole different way of hearing music that was introduced by James Brown.
0: Like the boomerang. Hey!
3: You're listening to Sound Opinions from Chicago Public Radio and American Public Media. We're paying tribute to James Brown, who passed at the age of 73 a few days ago. Jim, we were sort of making fun of the lyrics of Papa's Got a Brand New Bag, and James Brown would be the first one to tell you, hey, I was, it was just a little chant, it was a little yeah. riff that I had in the in the studio. But at the same time, he did have things to say. I can't say enough about uh, Say It Loud, I'm Black and I'm Proud, which came out in 1968, Jim, at, uh, at a very volatile time in America's history.
6: Newark's on fire, Detroit's on fire, Watts is on fire, race riots, King's assassinated. Now, Brown's politics could be a little problematic, because a couple of years... After the release of this in 68, he actually sang this song at the inauguration of President Nixon. Yeah. Hip young music lovers wrote him off because of right. that. But James, you know, the president invited him to sing. He was happy to do it.
3: <laughs> <laughs> but the thing is, you know, it was so common in that day and age. I mean, words like Negro and colored were still going around in the lexicon of American culture. And, and James Brown was saying, no, I'm black and I'm proud of it. Ah! the cool touch there, the children's choir, singing those words defiantly with a sense of pride. It was a brilliant track, uh, brilliantly orchestrated, and at a crucial time in America, you know, sending out a healing message, but at the same time, just a touch of militance in there. He was a powerful, powerful figure in the black community. I got to say a positive figure. It wasn't about go out in the streets and burn stuff down. It was about make something of yourself. You know, he had that great line about when I was growing up, I was polishing shoes in front of the radio station. And then when I grew up, I owned the radio station, you know, (laughs) in, in Augusta, Georgia.
0: Ladies and gentlemen, fellow Americans, lady Americans, this is James Brown. I want to talk to you about one of our most deadly killers in the country today. I had a dream the other night and I was sitting in my living room. Just doze off to sleep, so I started dreaming. I dreamed I walked in a place and I saw a real strange, weird object standing up talking to the people. And I found out it was heroin.
3: You know, Jim, gotta be said too, James Brown could be said to have invented rap music. When you look at a song like King Heroin, In 1972, you know, a good seven years before the first recorded rap song, you've got to say, hey, there's the roots of rap music and hip-hop in that song right there. King Heroin will, you know, bring you to your grave. It'll leave you dead, 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 brother. You know, it's pretty yeah. chilling stuff. This from a guy who
6: abused PCP. And that's, <laughs> that's what he was allegedly high on when he, well, not allegedly, <laughs> yeah. he was convicted, you know, led police on a 50-mile chase, driving on the rims of his truck. Are you saying there were some contradictions in James Brown's personal life versus his art? There were just a few. Uh, all right, so if he invented hip-hop with King Heroin, hip-hop certainly repaid the favor. Uh, Greg, there's no official way figure out what the most sampled song in history is but it's got to be by James Brown <laughs> yeah, most, so. most most people in the hip-hop and R&B worlds will tell you that it's by James Brown people take a bar or two or sometimes even just a note and they build an entire new track out of this what made James Brown so great as a foundation for hip hop and R and B and electronic dance songs? The rhythms, <laughs> yeah. uh, the horn punctuations, uh, the melody was there often in only two or three note bursts. His guttural growls to, to have a little bit of James cheering you on. I mean, well, that's you know <laughs> as good as you get. Let's just look at the song, the payback, and let's see some of the music that uh, that sampled it. <laughs>
3: A jam that you love that don't be getting no airplay. Strictly for front when you're riding around. Twelve o'clock at night
0: with your windows down.
3: There are just six examples of how James Brown continues to live in contemporary music. You heard uh, Queen Latifah, LL Cool J, Mary J. Blige, Ice Cube, Massive Attack, and Vogue all biting just a little piece of one James (laughs) Brown song, The Payback, from 1973. Literally 20 and 30 years later, artists still finding relevance in that music and using it to serve as a foundation for their new songs. And Brown,
6: inspiring, it should be said, in terms of giving that music freely. Like George Clinton with Parliament Funkadelic was was honored to have people sample because he knew what he took from the musicians that came before him, and he was happy to have this this music. I think he wanted to get paid too, but he was nevertheless happy to see his influence. And, you know, who knows how many genres are still going to be invented in the years to come thanks to James Brown, one of the greats.
0: Get it!
3: Later on on Sound Opinions from Chicago Public Radio and American Public Media, we're going to be handing out the coveted Soupy Awards. But up next, we have The Secret Machines, live in the studio, a rare acoustic performance from the Powerhouse Electric Trio.
6: Welcome back to Sound Opinions from Chicago Public Radio and American Public Media. I'm Jim DeRogatis. My partner is Greg Cott, and we've got a band we're really excited to have here in the studio, Secret Machines. We've been talking about having you guys come up here forever, but it's good to finally have you here. Uh, It's great to be here. Quick sketch. Came together in 2000 in Dallas right? Yeah. Yes. Yeah. But you guys have lived all over the country, making mm-hmm. music uh, en route to where you are now. Uh, lived in Chicago for a while, making yeah. uh, mm-hmm. some recordings here. Your first EP, I think, right? Yeah. Yeah, we recorded at Clave Studios with Brian Deck. Yeah. yeah. And then a killer debut album a couple of years ago for reprise. get signed to the major label, Now Here is Nowhere. And the second album came out a couple of months ago. We talked mm-hmm. about it on the show when it came out. Ten Silver Drops. And uh maybe a good place to start, you guys are on the road touring well, you've been touring nonstop you're road warriors, but this is a very special tour yeah, it is in the round, like yes, back in the heyday right? <laughs> it,
4: it's yeah. funny
6: it's funny it's actually more
4: of a hexagon, so we're kind of calling it in the hex actually. in the uh, <laughs> it's kind of it's kind of mistitled
6: but you're setting up in the middle of the club, yeah, not yeah. on the stage, yeah, so that fans can surround you yeah, where'd this idea come from?
4: We did it a long time ago, a few times when we'd go out to um, Marfa, Texas, and we played a few times at Chinati Foundation out there. And uh, they let us set up in this Ambets Hall and uh, just smack dab in the middle. And there was this really nice chandelier over us. And we just kind of set up our amps in a circle and invite people out. Hmm. And uh, it worked great, you know, it's how we play when we were in our rehearsal room. So and it's an intimate thing, like the yeah, audience is. Yeah. Well, I think it's it's more intimate for us as the three of us playing because there's really close contact, eye contact. We can, I think, we can take our songs further out more easily because we have such better communication. And at the same time, it's less like watching a TV show for the fans, and it's mm-hmm. more like them kind of being a part of musical performance. Yeah.
3: You guys started out in Dallas, as as Jim mentioned, and are set up acoustically right now, but we just saw you in Lollapalooza in Chicago on the the lakefront, beautiful summer day, and I thought, of all the bands over that three-day weekend, you guys seem like perfectly suited for that sort of big, huge environment. I mean, it's a big, big sound that you guys have and generate, and yet at the same time, I'm wondering, do the songs start in that big, huge place, or do they start... Similar to the way you're set up now, sort of more of a stripped-down acoustic kind of thing.
4: Wow. I think a few have started in that big, big way, kind of come out of jams and things like that. But when we first moved to New York, we had to play in our apartment. We couldn't really play that loud. (laughs) Mm -hmm. I mean, luckily, we had some kind neighbors, you know, but we'd play pretty much like this. Except Josh had a kit, played really lightly. I mean, (laughs) because you
6: are a powerful drummer, Josh. I mean, it's said in almost every review, not since Dave Grohl with Nirvana have we heard a a drummer do the bottom thing quite so effectively.
5: Yeah, and it's funny because I think playing soft for like, what was it, a year and a half, two years? Yeah, yeah. I think that's what made us a better loud band. Mm -hmm. You know, because we really had to learn how to played mellow and, and soft and Yeah, sometimes it's easy to hide behind volume and you know, I mean I'm playing quiet you can't really
2: there's no hiding you know you have to pick what yeah. notes you play and how you play it
3: yeah you guys were sort of living on top of each other in New York, too, right? I mean, yeah. that was kind of like, what you know, room. move from Dallas, go to New York, no gigs, no prospects no. lined up at the moment. No right? money. <laughs>
4: <laughs> the middle of winter, too.
3: That's they kind of insane. Can... Of all the cities to move to in the middle of winter with no money, I mean, New York is probably the last place anybody would say, well, that, that's a reasonable decision, boys. Go ahead and do that.
4: Yeah, well, we don't play music
3: because we're geniuses. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs>
6: what was what, Why did you decide to do that? I
2: don't know. I think we all felt attracted to New York City. I mean, having visited it in various times, I think there's something that we felt like we all should live there at least once. We should mm-hmm. try it. And yeah. for us, it was just like just as simple as that. Like, let's go live there, you know, and see what happens. And if you're going to be a band, why not be a band from New York? Why not try and. Well, grow. and it's
6: interesting because I, I think that the New York influence didn't really permeate into the music until uh, until Ten Silver Drops. I mean, now mm-hmm. suddenly you're writing about watching a drug deal go bad on the corner. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, I'm not that these things don't happen in Dallas, Oklahoma, <laughs> or Chicago, but they're a little more prevalent in New York. <laughs>
1: Slip girl with her knees crossed Sitting on the carpet in cold She was holding on to the money And I was doing what I was told There was an undercover cop parked right across the road
4: city life it's hardness yeah <laughs> <laughs> but
3: interesting though when you moved, did move there I think the whole strokes mania thing was just starting to pick up steam and all these other New York bands were starting to surface was that first of all an attraction at all and did you guys feel like you fit in with any of that when, when you did get there
4: when we first moved we were really big fans of this band home that was like the only New York band we really knew in like Sonic Youth and we showed up playing loud kind of psychedelic music and everyone's like "Going, what planet are you guys from that's really not what's
5: happening right now mm-hmm. you know everyone is yeah we were kind of going against the grain but not intentionally it's like and also you guys yeah. never
6: got those Brooklyn haircuts no we couldn't,
5: couldn't afford it remember <laughs> I think we, yeah, the, the Brooklyn year we, we actually it was like to save money we just decided not to cut our hair <laughs> We made a pact. <laughs> we were like,
4: don't cut your hair until we get some money. Yeah, it was like all for one, one for all. Yeah. We, if one of us is going to look you know, like shaggy hippies, then we all are oh, <laughs> stuck.
6: Well. <laughs> well, you guys are sitting here all set up, ready to play. Can we hear a song?
4: Try a doldrums, you say? Yeah. All right, here goes nothing. <laughs>
3: we got one down. One down. You're listening to Sound Opinions from Chicago Public Radio and American Public Media. You just heard a rare acoustic performance of Daddy in the Doldrums by our guests, The Secret Machines. We're going to be right back with the band after a short break.
6: Welcome back to Sound Opinions from Chicago Public Radio and American Public Media. We are here with Brandon Curtis, Ben Curtis, and Josh Garza of The Secret Machines. Now, you guys are set up acoustically today, but Brandon, usually you shuffle between bass and keyboards. Ben's on guitar, and Josh is on drums. Uh, can you guys tell us a little bit about how you came together, and why did you decide just to go with a trio? I don't.
2: I think it was just we got along with each other, and we shared some kind of... Um, our interest in music is equally obsessive. We just got in a room together and started playing, and it just seemed to work. But I mean, and we never—it never occurred to us to add someone else. Yeah, so, it's never occurred to us.
4: Yeah, it's never.
3: <laughs> yeah. Well, well, wasn't the first EP sort of recorded before you kind of really knew what you were going to be doing? I mean, didn't yeah. you sort of call up Brian Dack and say, "Record us." You yeah, know, we yeah. really haven't played together. That we actually much? had a lot of guests on that. I mean, Tim
4: Rutili played some guitar on it, and. Um, Ben well, Masrela, yeah, Ben the, the yeah, we had that whole the yeah, guys. Yes. California <laughs> crew, yeah crew like yeah. all over that record. I think we booked that session before we started even playing, yeah. And so we kind of got together and basically wrote that record from start to finish before we even figured out what we were going to do as a band.
3: So you booked the recording session before you'd actually even played a note together. Yeah we're, yeah, we're big on
6: we're big <laughs> yeah. on the plan, the five year plan.
4: <laughs> <Yeah>.
6: <laughs> well, there's well obviously you two, uh, you know Ben and Brandon, you, you guys are brothers. You grew up together, so there was this. You had a shared history. Where did you come in the mix, Josh? But see, it's funny. These
5: guys, Ben and Brandon, were in a band that was actually kind of finishing up. And uh, I was in this other band, and they asked us to open up for their last gig. Mm. And I think that was the first time I really, I mean, we'd kind of met, because in Dallas, they're all the musicians know of, of everybody else. But I guess, you know, once that ended, you know, me and Brandon started jamming together, and it just all kind of clicked. Well, good.
6: we're going to have you play some songs. Uh, maybe just one more question before we mm-hmm. get into the music. You know, as we said, it's a big sound. Secret Machines is a massive sound, and here we're going to have this rare treat of hearing you acoustic. I think that's the thing that's... Uh, uh, that makes you guys special is you strip it away and there is still a song. There's always a song. It's mm-hmm. not just pummeling you with this, these massive drums and these freaky psychedelic sounds. <laughs> How does the songwriting work in the group? How do the tunes come together?
2: It just comes from something like this, like the three of us sitting in a room playing stuff over and over again and things kind of emerge. You know, One of us will have an idea or a, a pattern or a shape of something and we just play it to death for hours and hours and it kind of turns into something. I think we're all into composition and like collectively we all kind of edit and arrange stuff together and
4: yeah we don't really write um with based on sounds i think a lot i think some bands do that which i think that's a okay way to write with making a certain sound and building a song around it but the sounds come afterwards with us mm. you know it's always a song first
3: i i have to ask you too uh, to follow up on that the songwriting aspect of it you're very self-contained i mean you you've produced both of your major label records i mean you you've done the production Ben, I think we actually talked about this when the uh, first record came out. I'd mentioned to you that you had actually gotten an offer from Bob Ezrin yeah. <laughs> to record yeah. you guys, to produce the record, and you guys said, hmm,
4: yeah, we, no we got, thanks. We had some offers, you know. We had a few. I mean, a few people wanted to. It's really flattering, but it's like if Eno came along and wanted to make a record with us, it, we couldn't really do it because I think that the only way we could make a record better than Brian Eno would make is if he's not there. You know, because mm. if he's there, it'll only be as good as anything Eno has ever done. So I think you can only really outdo people if they're, they're not present.
3: <laughs> <laughs> That's interesting. And, it, and it's interesting, too, that you got the leeway from the label to do oh, that, so uh, especially lucky. for a new band. You know, oh, you, wait a minute. You don't want to record with Bob Ezra and you want to do it yourself.
2: It was yeah, sort of smoke feet.
3: and mirrors. We were like, "Let us
2: just give us a chance to do two songs. We'll do two songs, and then they kind of like, well, okay, and like, we'll do two more. We'll do more, and we can just finish the record. We're already in the studio, and then it's like, next thing you know, we're done. And you know, we kind of pulled the wool over their eyes a little Although bit. We but, did, yeah. uh, well, and it's cheaper. It's probably yeah.
6: one tenth as expensive as Bob well, yeah, well,
5: Ezra would have been for yeah. us. It's just cheaper, cheaper to use uh, Eno's oblique strategies because you can get those.
6: I know. You so just, you know you, at the now you have them on the net. There's a computer up, uh, program. You just hit it and <laughs> open strategies. Yeah. Whenever you're in a dilemma in the studio, have you used uh, those? You, you pull we, one yeah. up. Yeah, yeah we yeah. have. Mixing actually, a lot. Yeah.
5: yeah, those are fun. You know, and it it is cheaper than yeah. him being there. <laughs> is it
6: finished? <laughs> or or you know, is it raining? <laughs> okay. Well, play some some tunes, guys. Let's hear the stripped down acoustic Secret Machines. We really we you know you know Bedhead. Oh, we yeah. Had a bad head. Yeah, great band. We
4: were going to do, do a bedhead song. We've never of done, the done it before. Slow core mov- movement. Yeah, yeah. Right? yeah.
6: Which they hated being called. They were slow as s, though. They, <laughs> they were very. They were...
4: I can't believe that they didn't like that.
6: <laughs> well, everybody always hates to be pigeonholed. Yeah. That's true. yeah. What's the bedhead song?
4: Rest of the Day. Cool.
6: Yeah. yeah. Sounds great. We've yeah. never
4: done it before. Let's
6: pay homage. Uh, even was, better.
4: He just downloaded the lyrics. <laughs> that's great.
6: Oh, True. is that
3: w- the sheet that's on your uh, yeah. stand
6: there? Yeah. Well, you know, given that you guys had never even played together when you started your first recording, it was right in, right in keeping. Yeah. Yeah. It's spontaneity. Yeah. All right, we're going to try to play a Bad Ed song. All right, let's do it.
4: I had to
1: wake up my head. My body has I am in almost every possible place I'd rather not leave the bed here with you since there's a dead black cat Blinds over their eyes I'm sure we can see ourselves
6: To bedhead, and you guys, you know, you can be unplugged and you're still swirling and trippy and psychedelic. That is a good trip. <laughs> yeah. cool. good trip. Thanks. Thanks. Good trip too.
3: Yeah. Yeah. You're listening to Sound Opinions from Chicago Public Radio and American Public Media.
0: Live from Chicago Public Radio, the undisputed home of rock and roll, it's the year-end awards show that renders the Grammys as irrelevant as they deserve to be. Please welcome your hosts, Jim and Greg,
6: for The Soupy. All right, as you know, listeners of Sound Opinions, we cover the happenings in the world of music, and quite often they are thoroughly absurd. In honor of that, we've got some prizes to hand out. We do this annually. We call them the Soupies for Sound Opinions. Greg, you and I are going to go back and forth. You have the envelope there for the first award. <laughs>
0: Me, so I duck and roll, middle finger still up, saying a glow, and my dog still down. We don't trust him. I live life like a king, I will set this stone. Kevin Federline, I come tight with every rhyme. I built a kingdom down the street from Pepperdine. This and a worm got me heavily sedated. I'm Kevin Federline, America's most hated.
6: Yes, Greg, America's most hated man, or at least the uh, most hated person I had to review in 2005, was none other than that genius known as Kevin Federline. And we are getting. Giving him the 14-minute, 59-second award. Why? I had to sit at the House of Blues and watch him perform in the midst of a a tour supporting his first and only album i'm sure the one that britney paid for he played in chicago the night after the divorce news became final the whole rest of the tour was canceled
3: you Couple, were a witness to history
6: weren't you i had to go sometimes the you know last I get, I get second of a career you, it was right on the cusp you know andy warhol said everybody's gonna have 15 minutes of fame sometime in the future this guy this talentless boob who is now only ever going to be a punchline for being divorced by britney <laughs> that was it ending his career you saw it melt down on stage which was a beautiful thing Get
3: this after party Popping
0: everybody Got themselves another body knocking out without protection No, that's my confession
3: But at the spot If you just think you own the lesson You can drop, drop it like, like it's hard Hold up I came to cool out Lay back and get Maybe Henny, maybe Jen, a couple shots of Patrol. And if you didn't you missed it, but now it's known that this that, sing that song. That's Snoop Dogg who keeps making headlines not for his music, but for his arrest record, which just keeps getting longer and longer. And guess what? This guy carries around the same three things with him wherever he goes. <laughs> it's the gangster rap starter kit. Pot, cocaine, and a gun. Soon to be available at Walmart. But meanwhile, we're giving Snoop Dogg the most cliched criminal act award. Right, who says rock can't age gracefully? We are giving out our Rock Aging Gracefully awards to uh, the Sex Pistols. Who else but the Sex Pistols inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame? Well, they told them, we're not showing up. Next to the Sex Pistols, Rock and Roll, and that Hall of Fame is a piss stain. Johnny Rotten told the Hall of Fame, your museum, urine and wine, we're not coming. <laughs> That's pretty pithy. Talk about a rigid middle digit extended in the direction of of the hall of fame thanks to the sex pistols talk about the rock aging poorly award there is only one contender for this award as far as we're concerned cbgb moving to las vegas what a tragedy the original punk club in new york city turned into a vegas act The Velvet Underground, though, there was a band that could have benefited from some payola. <laughs> Great music, but never got on the radio back in the day. is rampant in the record industry today, and there's one man who's going out and snuffing it out. God bless Elliot Spitzer, that's all I can say. <laughs> the New York State Attorney General, one of the best names in rock and roll. And now, Greg, he's actually the governor-elect of the state of New York. And our winner of the Best New Sheriff in Town Award. He has gone after the record companies for payola, extracted tens of millions of dollars in fines. This year, he started going after the big radio conglomerates, got a $2 million fine from CBS Radio. All we can say is, go, Elliot Spitzer, go. Go.
6: Greg, this next award plays on some people who I'm sure have benefited from Paola. We are calling it the Hootie the FRU Award in honor of Hootie and the Blowfish. Uh, If you recall, (laughs) when they sold 8 million some odd copies of their second album, it was largely credited to David Letterman just because he enjoyed saying their name and thought it was funny sounding. These are three acts, even though we cover this... We were shocked to see these acts consistently week after week on the top of the charts because we never heard of them. Where did they come from? Rascal Flats. Well, they've had a couple of albums out. It's a dreadful new country band, one of those country pop bands. Really made a big impact in 2006, although they've had hits before because they did the cover of Life is a Highway on the Disney movie Cars. Uh, in one way or another, we have movies or TV to blame for all these acts. The Fray. They were touring the country, selling tens and thousands of tickets for their live tour. I'd never heard of them. Something like 20,000 tickets sold here in Chicago. Who are they? Well, apparently they've been all over the soundtrack to Grey's Anatomy, which is their only claim to fame. And then finally, KT Tunstall. TV helped her out. She's been on Grey's Anatomy's soundtrack, too. But the biggest boost she got was when Catherine McPhee on American Idol sang her song, and uh, so it wasn't even KT that had a hit with this tune, but it, this song became popularized, as much dreadful music has, by American Idol and uh, suddenly made KT Tunstall a household name, except not in our house. I still don't know who the F she is. I'm not- All right, Greg, we got two awards spinning off of rock and politics. We talked a lot about that. We don't want to dwell on it much more. But there are two awards that we're going to give out. The award for paying too big a price for their political beliefs. I would say has to go to the Dixie Chicks. A couple of years ago on stage in London, they made a comment that they were shamed that President Bush was from Texas, and and so were they. They came back this year with a new album that had some comments about the price they paid. Radio continued to boycott them, and because they didn't back down from their political beliefs and, in fact, reaffirmed them in a couple of interviews, half of their concert tour was canceled. The best-selling female act in history, actually, couldn't sell any concert tickets and half the tour has to get canceled. I mean, whatever happened to free speech? On the other hand, an act that should have paid more of a price, or maybe we should subtitle this award the, uh, you know, shut up already prize, is Barbara Streisand. She doesn't perform that often. When she does, it's top dollar tickets. And she's out there with this vignette in her show where a Bush impersonator was coming out and saying, let's erase the national debt by selling Canada. It wasn't funny. The politics were muddled. But most of all, the tickets are Going for between 500 and 700 bucks. And in some markets, there was a special deal if you paid 50 grand, you could shake her hand backstage <laughs> of the show. It's like, shut up already, Barbara. No, don't bring around a cloud
0: to read on my parade. Try to see it my way. Do I have to keep on talking till I can go on? While you see it your way, run the risk of knowing that I love myself.
3: That is from one half of one of the couples in turmoil in the year 2006, and boy, what a couple they were. A very unhappy couple. Heather Mills and Paul McCartney, a divorce settlement from hell, ended up with a $235 million divorce package sent from Sir Paul to Heather, but not before Paul was accused of being a pot smoker, of beating Heather, of beating Heather's predecessor, Linda McCartney. Meanwhile... Paul called Heather a prostitute. Boy, they were in all sorts of trouble. It was, uh, if you ask me, she should have got double that because uh, he punished
6: us by writing <laughs> yesterday. Not to mention Ebony and Ivory. Uh, another couple I loved, Greg, were Marshall Mathers and Kim. Eminem, uh, Marshall Mathers' alter ego. Much of his first three albums dealt with how he wanted to kill this woman and get his revenge on her for doing him wrong. And then they fell in love again and he remarried her. And 11 weeks later, they divorced again. It's just it's, it's it's sad. It's just sad. I thought that one was going to last.
3: Yes, and then there's Pam Anderson and Kid Rock. They spent years fighting, dating, breaking up, dating again, breaking up. Finally, they decided to tie the knot. Four different ceremonies. I mean, and that was it for the world. They couldn't get married just once. They had to get married four, four different times. times. Yeah. And then, months later... You know, Pam Anderson shows up on her website and says, Divorce, yes, it's true. Unfortunately, impossible. Word is that Pam is being consoled by her previous husband, Tommy Lee of Motley <laughs> Crew. Now, there's an upstanding citizen. Don't pay any
6: attention to the video camera, honey. <laughs> Honest. But on the bright side, Greg, after all this marital turmoil, the couple of the year, I think, half of it is Jay-Z. And no, not, not with his girlfriend, Beyonce, but Jay-Z and Nas. <laughs>
3: They've been beefing since 2001. They're beefing, Jim. I mean, this is like serious. I mean, two of the mainstay rappers in our in our planet going back and forth, arguing, yeah, I'm better than it's you half are. Of, half You're of better each than of their uh, lyrical outputs has well, been about how they hate each other. Well, given the fact the way the whole Biggie Smalls and Tupac Shakur beef ended up in gunplay with both of those guys being dead. But you know what? Nas and Jay-Z are now a happy couple. Not only have they made up, but Jay-Z has a guest spot on the new Nas album. They're in love, Jim. It's very touching. I know you can feel the magic, baby! Turn my off, lights down.
0: Let's go, what up? What up, homie? I mean, it's what you expected, ain't
6: it? We hope they're as happy, Greg, as our production staff always is with us. <laughs> That's the soupies for 2006.
0: Turn the music up
3: Yes, we're going to be back in 2007, and we are going to start toting up next year's soupies beginning next week, Jim. <laughs> Can't wait for that. Yeah, and a bunch of stations adding us. We'll have a whole new
6: uh, part of the country to corrupt in 2007. I guess we
3: better get good real fast. Yeah,
6: really. It's amazing. we got some thank yous to say on the way out, as always. Tori Southside Malatia, the man who taught James Brown how to dance. So I heard. Is our executive producer. Todd Bachman is our managing producer and director. Matt Spiegel is our producer. Jason Saldana and Robin Lynn are our associate producers, and we get some legal help from Dino Armiros. Our session with the Secret Machines was engineered by Mary Gaffney. Thank you to everybody over at American Public Media selling the show hard and some uh, life advice
3: from Jim Russell. <laughs> Happy New Year, everyone.
7: So this is-
6: Progressive presents Adjusting to the Suburbs. I never really thought about tools until I bought a house in the suburbs. It's like this weird homeowner test if I need a tool for a project and don't have it. And my neighbor Ted loves to give me that look when I ask to borrow a pole saw. A year ago, I didn't even know pole saws existed. And now i got to borrow one from Ted? What is happening? Anyway, when you save
3: with Progressive by bundling your home and auto, that's the easy part of adjusting to the suburbs. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company coverage provided in service by affiliates and third-party insurers.